Hey, as you grab a seat, if you got a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open that to Mark chapter 1 tonight, Mark chapter 1. Um, and then we have mentioned this a few different times in a few different places, but uh, we understand that, that for some of you, especially those of you kind of in this area, you can see these TV screens here. Uh, those of you sitting um, in the VIP section up there or maybe a little further back struggling to see the screens, if you go to Calvary Westlake on your phone, calvarywestlake.org slash words, you can get all the teaching slides for tonight. So you'll be able to see everything that would be on the screen that you might not be able to see. Calvary Westlake, because that's where we are, calvarywestlake.org slash words, and you'll get all the words that should be on the screen. Uh, so I invite you to turn there each week if you want to. You can get the lyrics for the songs and, of course, uh, the teaching slides as we go. Um, we will be concluding tonight our teaching series on the Gospel of Mark. And so if you've been with us for any amount of time here, you know we've been teaching through Mark uh, with the intention of just seeing how long we'll go. Uh, we've preached seven weeks now, and we've only gotten through the first chapter. We will finish the first chapter tonight, so I'm quite proud of myself on that. Uh, but we're going to wrap up the Gospel of Mark. If you have not been able to be with us, uh, and you want to take a look at those Gospel of Mark sermons, uh, you can go on YouTube, uh, the Calvary Westlake YouTube, or go on our Young Adults, Calvary Young Adults um, podcast uh, and listen to any of those sermons you miss. So we're going to wrap up Mark tonight. Uh, and then really, as we jump into next week, the reason we're kind of concluding that um, is really, there's been some stuff pretty heavy on my heart, um, Pastor Brian Williams, Sarah Serwinski, Jacob Wood, as we've just talked about you guys, you, we've talked about being the church, being Christians uh, in this current moment. So some stuff that's just been heavy on our heart for your own heart and your soul and your sanity and your mental health and your spiritual health uh, as we go into the next seven weeks. So we'll start a seven-week series next week. Uh, I will talk to you more about what that is as we get into next week. Uh, but tonight we'll conclude, um, at least for now, the Gospel of Mark. We may pick that up again at some point. And so if you're in Mark, uh, go ahead and go to verse 39. That's where we'll begin tonight. Uh, we'll do about six verses here uh, to wrap up Mark chapter 1. So here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 39. Here's how it says. It says, so he, this is Jesus, so he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Uh, a man with leprosy came up to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So, so we, we've seen Jesus do a number of things. We've seen him teach. We've seen him drive out demons. We've seen him heal people. We've seen Jesus do all of these things. Jesus has this ministry where, where he's going and doing this kind of intense ministry with people. And then he goes away and he prays. He does this intense ministry with people. And then he gets alone and, and is with his father and kind of absorbs that time with him. And then what happens here is he's traveling throughout Galilee. Remember this sort of unheard of region. He's preaching in synagogue. So he's in church. He's driving out wickedness driving out demons, uh, and then it says a man with leprosy approaches him. Now, now leprosy in every way um, is the kind of worst possible disease you can have in the Bible. In fact, I think we understand leprosy better today than we did six months ago. And the reason you understand leprosy is because this pandemic we're going through, where all of you are sitting here with a mask and it's weird and we get that and we understand that, but we're all doing this right now because there might be this thing within us that we're projecting to someone else. Leprosy was the opposite fear. That if you were a leper, everyone would try to avoid you because they didn't want to get what you had. And so leprosy was not only a disease that was painful and difficult to live with, but it was this kind of social thing where if you had leprosy, it wasn't just that I didn't want to see you. It's I didn't want to see anyone who saw you. And again, I think during this pandemic, we might understand a little better what it's like for someone to feel this kind of weirdness about another human being because of a disease. Anyway, it says this man with leprosy comes to him and he begs him. And I want you to see what he says. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so here's the question I want you to start to think about with this man. Well, we don't know anything about this man other than he's a man and he has leprosy. 
And here's the thing I was thinking about. I was reading about this man, and I was wondering this question. Maybe you could ask yourself this tonight. Do you think this guy has any idea who Jesus really is? And I think the answer to that question has to be no, right? Like, he clearly knows that Jesus might be able to heal him. He's seen that Jesus has been healing other people. And so he comes up to Jesus. But do you think he knows that he's the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who will die for the sins of the world and raise again for our salvation? I think the answer to that question has to be no. Like, he doesn't fully get Jesus. He doesn't fully understand him. He doesn't fully get what's going on. And yet he knows enough to know that Jesus might be able to help. And here's why I think this is so significant. I want to speak to you tonight um, if you're just visiting us here. I want to speak to you if you're online tonight and you're watching in or looking in on this sermon now tonight live or maybe at some time in the future and you're not even courageous enough at this point to come to church. Maybe a friend brought you here. Maybe you don't know much about Bible or Jesus or any of this stuff we're talking about tonight. Here's the thing I love about my Jesus, I'll tell you. Jesus welcomes with open arms people who don't have the first clue who he really is. This is a beautiful thing about our Jesus. You don't have to know a bunch of things about Jesus to come to Jesus. You don't have to understand everything about the Bible in order for God's arms to be open wide towards you. You can be someone who is clueless about all the things of God and saying maybe church and Bible and Jesus and this whole thing is worth a shot and God will welcome you with open arms anyway. Like if you read through the gospel of Mark, as you read through any of the stories of Jesus's life, what you'll see are these individuals who encounter Jesus, who actually know very little about Jesus, and yet he welcomes them with open arms. There's not a quiz they have to complete. There's not a class they have to get through. It's just welcome wherever you're at, whatever's going on. I want to speak to you tonight if you're not familiar with Jesus. I want to speak to you tonight if you're new to church. I want to speak to you tonight if you feel like you're the one here who doesn't know the Bible things or doesn't know the words to the songs we're singing. I think there's a Jesus who welcomes you. And if that's you tonight, if you're going, that's me, I don't really know anything about Jesus. Here's a prayer a pastor when I was in college taught me to pray. And I want to invite you to pray this prayer, these words. If that's you tonight and you feel like you don't really get the whole Jesus thing, but maybe he could help you, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. Here's what the pastor said. It'll be on the screen. It'll be on the slides on your phone as well. And he says, God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. And I've just always thought this was such a beautiful prayer. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. God, whatever's going on inside me, I don't even fully understand me because listen, none of us fully understand us, Right? Like you've probably done something in this last week. You're like, I don't even know why I did that. But I don't even know what's going on inside of me. I'm just willing to offer that up to God. And God, listen, I don't know everything about you. I don't know everything in the Bible. I don't know everything about who you are. But I give all I know of me to all I know of you. And here's what I want to promise you on the authority of God's spoken word to us. That God receives that prayer. Not because you know everything about God. But because the great promise of Jesus, my Lord and Savior in the Bible, is that everyone who seeks him will find him. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. That God wants to receive you, not based on your intelligence or knowledge level about him, but rather on your willingness to seek him and to find him where he is. This is this man, he comes up to Jesus and he says, if, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't even ask a question. He doesn't even know the right way to ask this question. He just comes up to Jesus and says this. And then it says in verse 41, this is one of the most fascinating parts of the Bible. Jesus was indignant. Now, actually, this is such a weird part of the Bible that Jesus responds to this individual who has the faith to walk up and say, you are willing, and if you're willing, you can make me clean. And and this is such a strange part of the Bible that actually um, there's manuscripts of the ancient text of the Bible where people change this. And it says they changed it from indignant, which just means angry and outraged, to Jesus was filled with compassion. 
but, but actually the original text here, the original thing that was written here was that Jesus was angry. Jesus was indignant. And you might be tempted to think that Jesus was angry at this individual, angry for bothering him, angry for getting in his face, angry for taking up his time, but that's not the case. What we're going to see here is that Jesus is being indignant. Jesus' rage here, Jesus' anger is not directed at the individual who has leprosy. Jesus' rage is directed at the fact that there are individuals who have leprosy. See, Jesus' anger here is not that this person is sick. Jesus is angry that people get sick. So you need to understand something about Jesus. Jesus saw the world as it was created. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, was in the very act of creation. In the book of Genesis, when it says God created the heavens and the earth, I want you to imagine that Jesus, the son, the second member of the Trinity, was right in the midst of that. Jesus knew how the world was supposed to be, and yet he knows what happened when sin entered into the world. So what's Jesus angry about here? He's angry about the effects of sin. He's angry that people get sick. He's angry that people die. He's angry that people get divorced. He's angry that people get cancer. He's angry that people get laid off. He's angry that people get stabbed in the back or become addicted to things. He's angry about the consequences of sin in this world. And child of God, Christian, person who's trying to be like Jesus, can I release some of you to understand that it's okay for you to be angry too? It's okay for you to look around the world and see the things, the effects of sin on this world and to be angry. In fact, I want to say to someone tonight that anger is a helpful gift. That you looking around the world and seeing the effects of sin, the brutal effects and damage that sin and wickedness and evil have brought into this world, it is okay for you to be angry. In fact, sometimes it is right for you to be angry. For you to be angry about what happened to you. Angry about what happened to a family member or a friend of yours angry about what's happening in our city or angry about what's happening in our state or our nation, in our world, angry about some injustice you see, some effect of sin, some consequence of wickedness in this world. Uh, There is a just kind of anger that Jesus is modeling for us here. And I could spend eternity talking about kind of how to discern between just anger and then like sinful anger and all of that, but I'm not even trying to do that tonight. I just want to speak to you and help you understand tonight that based on what I see in Jesus, that anger is a helpful gift Anger is a motivating thing. Anger says something's not right with this world. There is something not just. And when my heart and God's heart are aligned and I feel anger, it's because there's something that has been affected by sin that we should not tolerate or celebrate in this world. So on the one hand, I want you to understand this, that anger is a helpful gift. But then here's what I need you to understand on the flip side, that anger is a terrible God. Anger is a helpful gift, but anger is a terrible God. And, and here's, again, what, what I guess, especially if you're not new, like if you're new to church, if you've not been around, um, I'm guessing no one here is like, but like, I, I worship the God of anger. Like, that's not your gig, right? You're like, you're, I'm into anger. I worship at his altar. Like, no, none of us do this. And yet when I say it's a wonderful gift, but a terrible God, I'm talking about has it become something that takes the place that God alone should have in your life? So so like in other words, there is a place for healthy, righteous anger when we see the effects of sin in this world, the damaging consequences of our rebellion against God, not only in our own lives or our family's lives, but in our society, in our world, in our history, there's a good place for that. So anger is a gift, but it's a terrible God. And here's where I want to challenge some of you tonight. I think some of you need to be released to understand that as a Christian, when you see wickedness, when you see sin, when you see oppression, when you see damage, you are allowed to be angry, and that is a holy thing. That that some people need to hear that tonight. But, But I also think there are some of you that might need to hear the other side of this. That anger is a wonderful gift, but a terrible God. And I want to try to diagnose that. So I'm just going to teach for a moment or two to some of you. 
And maybe I'm not speaking to every one of you, but maybe I am speaking to some of you who need to assess whether or not anger has become an idol in your heart, whether or not it has become the thing that has taken the place of God in your life. And let me explain it this way. How do I know if my anger is my God? Uh, I want to give you five things. Number one, your affection. Here's my question. Is it your first thought in the morning and your last thought at night? But like for some of you, you got hurt by someone. And there's no question it was sin and it was wickedness and there was no place for that in God's world or in your life. But, but for some of you, that, that anger has allowed you every night when you go to bed just to be filled with rage. And then you wake up in the morning and you're still filled with rage. And, and listen, there, there's a place and a time for that. I, I just want you to know if that captures your imagination throughout your entire life and you think every morning I can remember I've woken up angry and I've gone to bed angry, that anger has taken a place in your life that it does not deserve. It has your affections. You know how this can happen to you too? Um, this can happen to you not when something is like done wrong to you, but when there's something wrong out there in the world or Lord help us, there's something wrong on the internet. You, you know what some of you do? And I'm gonna speak to like some of your souls and just completely um, like, like try to rebuke this in you. Um, some of you go to bed every night and the last thing you do before your head hits the pillow is you look at the news. You look at Twitter. You look at what's going on in this world and you go to bed outraged because guess what? There is a never-ending stream of outrage on Twitter and on the news, right? But like, do you understand that the news is not there to inform you? The news is there to get you riled up so that you'll go back once more and look and click on it. And some of you go to bed and the first, the last thing you do is you look at the news and you get outraged at the world and then you go to bed and then you wake up and what do you do? You grab your phone and you check the latest news and you wake up and you're outraged. And here's what I need you to know. If that has become the pattern of your life where you go to bed and wake up angry at everything that's going on in the world, anger might have taken the place of God in your life. And I need you to turn from that. I need you to recognize that. I need you to see that that's destroying you from the inside. So it's your affection. The next is your commitment. Uh, I wonder if some of you avoid conflict resolution because anger feels better. But like anger is like cocaine, okay? Um, I, I'm gonna confess to you, I've never taken cocaine. And if you have... <laughs> I just, I, I'm, like, I'm like hyped up enough already, right? Like I, like I don't need that, right? Um, but, but listen, if you have, like you're so welcome here, this is not like a knock on you, like you've used drugs. Like that's not this. But, but, but understand, like, like, like cocaine is this thing that like feels really good in the moment, but I, I think we can all agree it's pretty bad for you in the end. And, and anger does the same thing. Like anger, make, the anger feels so good. And the reason anger feels so good is because we feel like we're the righteous ones and they're the bad ones. And so what can actually happen is you can get into a pattern where you are so angry with everyone all the time that you would rather be angry because it feels better than a conflict resolution. You would rather be angry than go through a process of forgiveness and reconciliation because anger feels better. There's your affection. There's your commitment. Uh, for some of you, you can see and, and assess your morality. So you think anything is justified because of your anger. So because of what he did to you, you're angry and everything you do is okay. It's okay for you to hurt people because you're angry about it. It's okay for you to cut people off who are valuable in your life because you're angry. It's okay for you to rage and hurt and lash out at people. It's okay for you to manipulate and steal and cheat people because you're angry. If your entire morality, the entire basis of right and wrong in your life comes from how you feel and how enraged you are, that has taken the place of the Lord your God, the Holy One in your life. It is your morality. The next one is your justification. Uh, when, when people aren't as angry as you, you judge them. And so you look down on everyone who isn't as angry. And so you're angry about this subject or this thing or this issue. And you're so outraged. And then someone doesn't seem as outraged. 
Someone seems to be enjoying their day. They post on Instagram story that they're like enjoying a coffee. You're like, be mad with me. You know, like that's what you do. And yet here's what I'd say. Like this becomes your salvation, your justification, your ability to look down on other people because you're angry, which means you're better than them. And here's what I need you to know. If your way of assessing your relationship to God and other people is how angry you are and how less angry they are, and that makes you better and that makes you look down upon, your anger has become something that has taken the place of God in your life. And finally, here's the final one, salvation. Um, that you think the ultimate enemy is what you're angry about. So, so she hurt you and you're angry at her and you just think she is the ultimate enemy and if she could be brought down, then everything would be perfect. You're angry about some social justice issue. You're angry about real things in this world like racism and oppression and sexism and war and poverty and genocide and you're angry about it. And you think if that one thing was just done away with then everything would be perfect. If you think politics, if it would just change, if that party would just cease to exist, if that politician would just drop dead, everything would be great. I need you to know if you've set your world up in such a way that the object of your anger goes away and everything's perfect, you have replaced God with your anger. So here's what you need to know, that God is ultimately the one who should have your affection. God is ultimately the one who should have your commitment. God should be the one who centers your morality. God is your justification and God is your salvation. And again, I think so subtly what can happen is a true, honest to God wrong happens to you and you're angry about it. And you allow that anger to become the defining feature of your life rather than God himself. And again, I'm not speaking to all of you tonight. But if I am speaking to you tonight, I want you to do the deep work. I want you to do the honest work before God. To say, God, I want you to have this central place in my life. Not this anger, not this rage, not this feeling I have. I want it to be you. Jesus was indignant. And Jesus was indignant, not because of his indignancy, his, his anger, his rage was at the center of his life. He was indignant because something he saw didn't line up with how the God of the universe wants things to be. It goes on this way in verse 41. It says, he reaches his hand out and touched the man. And he said, I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you do not tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded you for cleansing as a testimony to them. So, so if you read the Gospels, and maybe you've read the Gospels before, this doesn't just happen in Mark, but it happens a lot in Mark. There's actually these weird moments where Jesus will heal someone or Jesus will do something miraculous, and you would expect Jesus to be like, hey, this thing, go tell everyone. But that's not what Jesus does sometimes. Sometimes Jesus looks at someone and goes, remember that cool thing I did? Yeah. Like, that's what he does. He's like, don't tell anyone. And they talk about this in the scriptures as the messianic secret. Like, like Jesus, for some reason or another, has this impetus for certain people of don't tell people who I am. Don't tell people what I've done. And this is this really bizarre thing that Jesus does. So I want to try to ask the question tonight uh, to wrestle with this serious question in the Gospels. Why does Jesus want to keep the fact that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, a secret? Why does he want to do this? Well, what is Jesus up to where he is trying to keep the fact that he is the Messiah a secret? And here's how I want to try to answer that question. I believe the people living at the time of Jesus had an incomplete and inaccurate picture of what the Messiah was supposed to be. And it was incomplete, not because it was fully wrong, but because they didn't get how big it actually was. See, let me explain. The people at the time of Jesus understood that God was going to send a Messiah. We talked about this back in week one. The Messiah was the one who comes to rescue and liberate God's people. And here's what the people thought. 
When the Messiah comes, he will overthrow the enemy. He will overthrow our oppressor. He will overthrow the one who is pushing us down. And the people at the time understood the oppressor, the enemy, the one who had them under their boot. They understood that oppressor to be the Roman Empire. This Roman Empire that was ruling over the world at the time, oppressing the people of God, keeping them from freedom. They had an incomplete picture of what Jesus came to do. Because you need to understand that Jesus did come to overthrow the oppressor. He did come to overthrow the enemy, the empire, the one who ruled over God's people. But what they didn't realize is that the Roman empire was too small. Jesus didn't come to overcome the Roman empire. Jesus came to overcome the great oppressor of all, and that is death itself. That's what Jesus came to overcome. That's what Jesus came to topple. Jesus didn't come to topple a political empire. He came to topple death and hell and sin itself. That's why Jesus came. But here's the problem. If people understood Jesus to be this political person who was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, if that happened, here's what they would do. They would start to think the Messiah is here and he's gonna overthrow the Roman Empire and set up a kingdom where we're gonna rule as kings and queens and we're gonna be sovereign over everything. And you know what the people would have done if they thought Jesus was this political ruler? They would have gone back to their homes and they would have picked up weapons. They would have begun murdering Romans, killing people in the street, killing soldiers, attacking businesses, attacking the government because they thought the revolution was upon them. And Jesus knew this because Jesus knows the human heart better than you do and better than I do. Jesus knew that in that moment, people would think the Messiah is here, so let's take up arms and start killing people, let blood run in the street. And so Jesus knows this is not going to work. Jesus knows this is not okay. Here's what Jesus understands. If you do not understand the Messiah, you will not understand the mission. Jesus knew this. If you don't understand the Messiah, you'll never understand the mission. So if people didn't understand that the Messiah wasn't here to topple Rome, he was here to topple sin and death and hell itself. If they don't understand that, they're not going to understand how they're supposed to respond to the Messiah. And so here's what Jesus does. He says, for now, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. You're allowed to know that I'm the Messiah. In fact, I want you to celebrate the fact that I'm the Messiah, but don't tell people yet because until my mission is complete, until people see that I wasn't here to set up a political empire, but a spiritual empire, a kingdom that will last forevermore, until they know that, until they understand that, they will not understand the mission. And here's what I need you to know. This principle that Jesus applied to his first followers still applies to us today. Do you know that if you don't understand Jesus the Messiah, who he was and what he came to do, you won't understand what you're supposed to do? Like you get that, right? Like if you don't understand the Messiah, you won't get the mission. If you think the Messiah was here to amass political power, you know what you're going to devote your entire life to? Amassing political power. And how many Christians in America are doing exactly that, where it seems like their real mission isn't following Jesus, it's supporting a party or getting someone elected to the presidency or the Senate, Or like, this is what they do. So you misunderstand the Messiah, you misunderstand the mission. Do you know that there are Christians who think that Jesus came to make sure they always are healthy and always are wealthy and always are prosperous? Like they think Jesus came to make sure they're always rich and always good and never sick. And so if they misunderstand Jesus, they're gonna think the point of following Jesus is to always be healthy and prosperous and to never be poor. Like there are Christians who think Jesus came to take away all their problems. And so if they follow Jesus, they'll never have problems. So what do they think the mission is? The mission is to live a life without problems because that's what Jesus offers. There are Christians who think that, that, that Jesus came into this world. What was my final one? This is a good one. That, that there are Christians who think that Jesus came into this world to give us a list of rules to live by. 
And I wonder if some of you think that way. Like Jesus, he's just the one who tells us how to live and how we're supposed to live. And so if you think the Messiah was really just a rule giver, you're going to spend your entire Christian life just trying to follow the rules and stay in the box and check all the boxes so God's not mad at you. So you need to understand that when you misunderstand the Messiah, you misunderstand the mission. Until you get who Jesus is, you won't get what Jesus wanted you to do. And here's the wonderful thing about the scriptures. It doesn't leave us to guess what Jesus was all about. In fact, in the same gospel, if you fast forward to chapter 10 and verse 45, here's a verse for some of you to memorize. Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like in other words, the Son of Man, Jesus from heaven above in all of his glory, didn't come here so that we could just serve him, but rather he came to serve us. And how did he serve us? He gave his life as a ransom for many. He laid down his life so that your sins could be forgiven. He gave up his last breath so that you could be reunited with God. What was the mission of the Savior? What was the mission of the Messiah? It was to lay his life down for the sake of the world. So what's your mission? Lay your life down for the sake of the world. Give it all up. Lay your life down. Give it all up. Don't hold anything as your own, but cling to Jesus and say, God, whatever you want from me, I'll lay it down because I don't exist in this world to be served, but rather to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, just like my Lord, just like my King, just like my Jesus. What did the Son of Man come to do? He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And until you get what the Messiah was here to do, you'll never get what your mission is here in this life. Here's how it goes on, and this is gonna be the final uh, verse we're gonna look at in um, Mark chapter one and in our series on Mark. Um, And I want you to see kind of where this leads us. So uh, verse 45 of Mark chapter one, it says, instead, he went out and began to talk freely, right? Like, so Jesus is like, hey, don't tell people about me. I'm gonna tell people about me right now. He talks freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed in lonely places which is like a thing I'm not gonna preach on tonight, but this whole thing of like Jesus knew what it was like to be lonely and Jesus knew what it was like to be in a place where no one understood him and no one got him. And maybe you've experienced that too. So you know exactly what that's like for, we'll get that later. Okay, it says, yet the people came to him from everywhere. And this is really cool. So we kind of decided we were gonna wrap up at the end of Mark one here. And then we were all like, cool, that that works. And then as kind of that decision was being made, I was writing this sermon. And I I just thought this was actually a really cool end to our series on the gospel of Mark, um, that it ends with the statement that there are these people from everywhere coming to Jesus. And I was thinking about that because as I read the gospel of Mark, that's really all I see. Like all I see when I see the gospel of Mark, when I read chapter two through 16, when I read the rest of the gospel of Mark, I see people coming to Jesus from everywhere, from different places, different walks of life, different beliefs, different ideas, different power structures, different everything. People are coming to Jesus. And in fact, I want, as we close out our series on the gospel of Mark, I want you to see that as well. And I've designed a way for you to see that tonight, but you're gonna have to trust me for just a second, okay? Do we trust me for just a second? Okay. Grab your phones right now. Grab your phones. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab your phones. I want you to go to your little text message bubble. And I want you to do this. It's going to be on the screen right now. I want you to text the word Mark, just the word Mark, nothing else, to this phone number, 818-405-8445. So for those of you who can't see the screens, it's 818-405-8445. For those of you that are just now listening to me, it's 818 405-8445. Four zero five, eight four four five. 
You go ahead and text that number. Text the word Mark to that number, M-A-R-K. Text it to that number. And then while you're at it, save that number in your phone. This is the Calvary texting number. This doesn't go to my phone. This isn't my number, sorry. Um, this, this is a Calvary texting system. You'll get an automatic response. If you don't get an automatic response, you did something wrong, okay? Um, but you will get an automatic response. You can click the link on that. I want you to do two things. I want you to save this number to your phone. Because so often we'll say, hey, if you need prayer, text this number. If you want this response, text this number. If you want this thing you can fill out, text this number. Save it as Calvary's phone number or my church or whatever. I I don't care. Um, Text that. Open up to this link to the Gospel of Mark. Just raise your phone in the air if you got it. The little Gospel of Mark thing. Okay, we're we're getting there. Good, good, good. Okay. For those of you still getting there, you'll catch up eventually. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 1, verse 45. People still came to him from everywhere. And here's what I want to do as we kind of wrap up our our teaching series on the Gospel of Mark. I want to show you all of the people, every person who comes to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And what I've done is I've written it down, not in religious terms, not in even the terms the Gospel of Mark uses, but just in the terms of who that person is if we were to meet them on the street or even better, to meet them here at church tonight. So if you have it, I just want to follow along. I want to read here. Here are the people who encountered Jesus. Here are the people who came to Jesus and had an interaction with him here in the Gospel of Mark. There was a man with special needs and his friends. A greedy, corrupt, rich man. Sinners with a bad reputation. Judgmental religious conservatives. Immigrants and refugees from other countries. School dropouts, which, by the way, if you don't know, um, Jesus' disciples were Jesus' disciples because they were school dropouts. If they weren't school dropouts, they wouldn't have been fishing by the lake. They would have been in school. That's how it would have gone. If they were, like, good at school, they would have been in school forever, and yet they weren't, so they're fishing by the lake. They're dropouts, which is a hallelujah for some of you here who go, hey, man, that is me. (laughs) Sorry, I said it. All right, hypercritical people. People who find faith difficult. Violent and angry men, heartbroken fathers, desperate women, people who mock faith, people with chronic health problems, impoverished people seeking a handout, hypocritical religious leaders, young, a young woman with spiritual and emotional anguish, people who are amazed at God's power, stubborn people who won't change their minds, faithful people who miss the point sometimes, a man who doesn't really understand God, a young man who tries to take his own life, prideful people who think they're better than you, unsophisticated children, morally excellent rich men, Ambitious men who want glory and fame, a man who knows he needs God's mercy, people who worship God passionately, people who hate submitting to authority, people who value economics and politics over faith, religious leaders who feel threatened, a person sincerely seeking the truth, a person who betrayed his friend, people who fall asleep while praying, amen, a man who thinks God's will is for violent revolution, a corrupt legislative body, a corrupt executive leader, a man who denies his faith three times, a political leader who doesn't even want to take responsibility, violent law enforcement officers, a man with a heavy burden to bear, an angry mob filled with contempt, a secular man who comes to believe in the Son of God, and a group of women who are afraid. These are the people. When Mark chapter 1 and verse 45 says, people from everywhere came to Jesus, these are the people. These are the type of people who approach your Lord and Savior. These are the type of people who get to come before Jesus. These are the type of people that Jesus encounters here in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to put this before you tonight because I want to ask you two questions. And here's the first one. The first question is this. Who is it on this list that I just read or that you have on your phone here that you would find it difficult if they came to this church? 
Who is it if they, if they showed up here tonight and you were like, I know this about them, or someone whispered in your ear something about them and violated social distancing, but if they whispered in your ear and said, hey, hey, this is, this is true about this person, who would you struggle? And if your answer is no one, I don't believe you. If your answer is no one, congratulations on trying to seem pious. But the real truth is all of us have these internal biases, these internal things where we don't like certain people, where we're open to certain people coming to church, but only if they change their mind. Because if they change their mind and think exactly like I think, they're welcome here. But if not, find another place. We all do this. And I want you to do this tonight. If you find that person, if on this list you've identified someone and said, you know what, I hate this about me, but if someone like that showed up to our church, I don't know that I'd be happy about it. If someone, in that, if someone like this showed up in my small group, I'd consider leaving. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go read the text that's assigned to it in the Gospel of Mark. You'll see the text references after every single one. Go see how Jesus dealt with that person. And do business with the Lord. This isn't like a go read the Bible and you'll be better. Like that's not how this works. But go wrestle before the Lord. Like, who is it that you don't think is welcome here? Who is it that you don't think should get to be here? Who is it that you don't think gets to get God's mercy? Because all of us have this thing inside of us where we go, God's mercy is this big, but not this big, right? There's certain people on the margins that we've excluded from God's grace, and I need you to do business with the Lord before him for the sake of the world that we're called to lay our lives down for. That's the first question. Here's the second question. Who do you most identify with? Like, when it comes to this list, who are you like, yeah, that's me. I'm the person who struggles with faith, or I'm the person who's angry. I'm the desperate woman. I'm the guy who, who's mocking faith. I'm the guy who's angry all the time. That's, that's me. Like, who do you identify with? And then the solution for you is the same. Go read that story. You can do it right now. You can do it tonight before you go to bed, but go read that story. See how Jesus would encounter someone like you. See how Jesus would encounter someone who is just like you, because I think you will be surprised how Jesus interacts with people. When you strip away all of the religious imagery you have in your mind, when you strip away all of the traditions that you've been taught as a kid, and just read this text as if this is a real Jesus encountering a real person like you, you will be shocked to see how Jesus interacts. And here's what I want to point out. I want to point out just one of these. If you still have the list up, you can go to the very bottom. I want to point out the second to last um, individual on this list. And, and the second to last individual on this list in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 39, is a secular man who comes to believe in the Son of God. And I think this is this really profound moment in the Gospel of Mark. If you remember the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it talked about this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark was about the Son of God, and this is who Jesus is. And I want you to see how the Gospel ends. This is at the very end of the Gospel. It says this, we'll have it on the screen as well. This is in Mark chapter 15. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last Come on. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So this is Jesus on the cross, Jesus suffering, Jesus suffocating in his own blood in this moment, Jesus dying for the sins of the world. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And then it says here in the text, this strange thing, if you didn't grow up in church, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So if you don't know this, in the ancient world, in the, in the Judaism that Jesus was walking in and inhabited, there was one temple. And the idea is that the temple is the place where God's presence dwelled. There weren't hundreds of temples or dozens of temples. There was one temple. And in that temple, there was this one certain space that they said the presence of God dwells here. And what they did is they constructed a curtain that was so thick you couldn't possibly get through it. This curtain that separated human beings from the presence of God. 
And the idea was that God was too holy to get to and you are too sinful. God is here and you are there and there is a curtain that separates you. Because of your sin, you can't go into the presence of God. And Jesus dies and in that exact moment, the curtain is torn from top to bottom in two. In other words, in the moment Jesus dies, your access to God is granted. In the moment Jesus dies, your sins are forgiven. You are made holy, not by your goodness and not by your greatness, but by God's grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness to you. Like whatever you've done and wherever you've been, there is a God who says you can come into my presence, not because you're awesome, but because I am. That's the story of the gospel. This curtain is torn in two. People are welcome to come into the presence of God. People who don't know anything about God, people who have a spotty past, people who have a bad reputation, people who have done everything wrong are welcome to God. Then it says, and when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. There's a Roman centurion here, a Roman soldier. He's a secular man. He doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. Probably doesn't even believe in the God of Rome. He believes in the God of money and of power. Hey, he believes in just making a life for himself. His job is to crucify criminals in this unknown place in the Roman Empire. He's a centurion. He has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. I love this. I love that the Gospel of Mark doesn't end with some religious scene. It ends with a man who should have nothing to do with God, seeing Jesus for who he is and responding in this way. It says the centurion stood there in front of Jesus. Like he stands there in front of Jesus. And what an image, what a picture of what all of us do. But like when you come to faith in Jesus, when Jesus calls you toward himself, you stand there and you see Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the one who rescues. Jesus is the one who saves. This man did nothing but look at Jesus. And it says, and he saw how he died. He said, surely this man was the son of God. He makes a declaration of faith because he sees who Jesus is. He makes a declaration of faith because he sees what Jesus has accomplished. You know what's crazy, everyone? We get to meet this man someday. Do you know that someday in heaven, you who are Christians will meet this man? You will get to encounter the man, this centurion, this secular atheist who stood there and declared that this man is the son of God. That saving faith came upon this man, not because he was awesome, not because he knew all the answers, but because Jesus was in his presence and saved him in that moment. And there's gonna come a day where I'm raised to the newness of life in heaven and forevermore I'm with all of the saints of God. And I'll get to meet this man. Not because he knew everything, not because he had all the answers, but because he looked to Jesus. And in seeing who Jesus was, he declared that this man was the son of God. Do you know where I wanna invite some of you to tonight? I wanna invite you to make the same declaration. Like I think there are some of you listening, and again, perhaps you're listening on live stream tonight, perhaps you're here in person tonight. It doesn't matter. Maybe you've been secular. Maybe you've not been a believer in God. Maybe you've wanted nothing to do with the God of the Bible or any of this stuff, and yet here you are. For whatever reason, like God and all of his sovereignty brought you to a church tonight. And he brought you to a church where a pastor was gonna give you an invitation to declare the same thing that this man declared 2,000 years ago. That this man, this Jesus, is the son of the living God, the savior of the world, the mighty God over all things. Tonight, I want to give some of you an opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord, that the Bible gives this epic promise, and it's repeated all throughout the Bible. It's this great sentence. It says, whoever calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Like in that moment, you do what this man did, where he says, this was the son of God. You call on his name. You look to Jesus, and you say, God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Like in that very moment, the Bible says you're saved. 
Not because you did everything right, not because you know everything about Jesus, but because Jesus knows everything about you and he did everything right. That's the invitation, to come to Jesus tonight. So that's what I'm gonna offer. That's what I wanna invite some of you. Maybe there's no one here tonight who needs to make that decision, but maybe it's you. Maybe a friend brought you. Maybe you've just been showing up. Maybe you're not sure. I want to invite someone tonight to respond to Jesus for the first time. And so I want to give this invitation in this way. I'm going to ask you just all across this place, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And, and, and there's a reason we always ask you to do this. And the reason is simple. Um, there's going to come a day that you die. And I think in the last six months, all of us have become aware of our mortality, aware of the fact that this life doesn't go on forever. There's gonna come a day that you die and you will stand before God and you will give an account for your life and the only thing that will matter is what you did with the offer of his son Jesus and the mercy and forgiveness he showed you and the person sitting to your left doesn't get to speak for you that day. The person sitting on your right doesn't get to speak to you. So we close our eyes and bow our heads because there will come a day where you speak for what you did with Jesus and where you give an account for your life. And so right now, here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna pray a prayer. And, and listen, it's not a magic prayer. It doesn't, it's not some weird sentence you say and God saves you. Just a way for you to call in the name of the Lord tonight if you've never done that before. And I want to invite you, if this is your first time, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've never called out to Jesus, you've never said, I'm in with Jesus. He's the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who rescues me. I want to invite you to pray that with me tonight. Pray these words very simply in your own heart. Just say, Father in heaven, I recognize that you're God. I recognize that Jesus is your son. Father, I confess tonight that I've fallen short of the life you want for me. I confess that I need your mercy. God, I give all I know of me to all I know of you. Father in heaven, forgive my sins. Make me your child. Give me a home in heaven forevermore. Jesus, I pray you would rescue me tonight by your great mercy. With every eye closed and every head bowed, here's what I wanna ask. If tonight's that night, and you're saying, that's me. I prayed that prayer. I'm putting my faith and trust in Jesus for the first time. I'm declaring like this man did 2,000 years ago, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. If tonight's that night, would you do this? Would you just open your eyes and look straight at me? I see you across this place. You can just look straight at me. I'm not here to embarrass you, I'm not here to shame you. I'm here to celebrate with you. You know, if that's you tonight, the beautiful thing about the scriptures um, is it tells us that we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Like not a life that just lasts for this lifetime, but a life that lasts forever. And that moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins right now. But like God inhabits your soul and that presence of God doesn't go out there somewhere. It becomes in here. It becomes part of you, this journey you're on forevermore. And I want to celebrate that with you. I want to be sure tonight that you know that you know that today was the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so I believe you've done something true by praying that prayer. I believe you've done something good and beautiful by doing that. I want to ask you to do something brave right now. And maybe for some of you this might be too much, but if tonight's the night you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, I believe God saves you when you call on his name. But I want to invite you not just to be saved alone. I want to invite you to be celebrated by a church, by a community who's here to rally around you, who's here to say we're in with you. You're not in this alone. You never have to be alone. I want to invite you tonight to do something brave, and I'm going to invite you in just a moment to stand to your feet. If tonight's the night you're making that decision for the first time, we're not here to mock you, embarrass you, or do anything at all other than to celebrate what Jesus has done in our midst and what Jesus has done in your life. 
So if tonight's the night for you, and you're ready to say, I'm in with Jesus, he's the son of God, I believe, I trust, and I receive his mercy and forgiveness. On three, would you just stand to your feet? One, two, three. Stand straight to your feet. I see you back there. Thank you for your courage. I see you back there. I see you. I see you. It's beautiful. Well, for the rest of us, why don't you open your eyes and look straight at me? Here's what we know. We know that we have a God who saves and a God who rescues and a God who invites us in, not based on our knowledge, not based on our morality, not based on how awesome we are, but how good he is. And I think that's worth celebrating. I think that's worth singing about. I think it's worth worshiping. I think it's worth knowing that God is good and he is worthy of our praise in this place tonight. And so I wanna invite you to stand to your feet right now. We're gonna close in singing. We're gonna close in praise, believing that the same God who has saved has saved people tonight and will continue to save people as we go forward as a church, as a ministry following Jesus. Let's lift up our voices to that Jesus, the son of the living God.